This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And as always, I'm here with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? Uh, I'm well. Well, how are you doing today, Max? I'm fine. I know you just got back from the first conference. Uh, sorry, what was the name of the conference again that you guys? Did? Yeah, Additive Manufacturing Strategies. It was really great. It was really, you know, one of these hybrid event things. Uh, but I met a lot of people. A lot of really great people, a lot of like leader type people. That was really good to see that, that, that there was like um, Jeff from 3D Systems was there and um, uh, Brian from Centavia and, and yeah, all these like uh, yeah, leaders. And that was really good to see that, that it was good to get together with everyone again. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so who do we have on the pod today? Uh, Joe Flynn and Joe is from uh, well, a company called Gen3D and it's like really... At first, like, there was this group of English academics or British academics, and they were doing, like, this software, and I had never heard of it. And I, I decided to look into it, and it actually is really intuitive and actually is very powerful and simple, and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> so that's why Joe's here today. Ooh, the solution. Hi, Joe. Hi, everyone. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's nice to be here. Yeah. So, so first of all, like, tell, talk to us a little bit about Gen three D. I mean, it, it's, it's it's you're a bunch of academics. All of a sudden, you end up making a software package. How does that happen? Absolutely. So we, the original co-founders, which is myself, um, Wesley Essink, who's the CTO now, and um, our other director, Vimal Dokia, we were all part of the same research group at the University of Bath. So, it started with uh, Vimal getting some government funding to start looking at new design tools for hybrid manufacturing processes. So this would be some combination of additive manufacturing and probably a subtractive technology like uh, CNC machining. And there was a, a really big buzz about all of that happening in the same machine for a while. And we were researching mm. algorithms that might help people to design things that would be manufactured that way. And there really wasn't anything at the time. And then uh, what we realized more and more is actually we were a bit more excited about the additive bit and less excited about the hybrid bit. And um, I think like lots of people who entered the space at a similar time, we were realizing, goodness me, uh, traditional CAD software just is not really cut out for designing the complex geometries that you might see in an additively manufactured component. And, you know, what we were trying to achieve were things that we could imagine, things that we knew we could manufacture, but we just had no way of designing that in a digital sense. And this happened enough times for us to say, hey, look, there's enough problems here for us to get into the market and start trying to address some of them. And um, ultimately, that led to us forming the company Gen3D and producing the product, which is now known as Sulis. So I'm with you that the software side of the 3D design has been horrendous for a long time. And it's an encumbersome tool that doesn't allow us to do what we want. What's, what is it that your system has now done that makes it so much easier or better? What are the main problems that you think you've solved? Okay, so I think it's a combination of things. Firstly, there are algorithms and um, disparate pieces of mathematics that help you to solve some of these problems. That's in, in some respects, that's come quite a long way. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've got a tool that really empowers designers to get on and do productive work. There has to be some usability. And what we are trying to marry at Gen3D in, in everything that we do is some mathematical complexity behind the scenes uh, and some algorithmic complexity behind the scenes. But the user shouldn't really see any of that as they go through their day-to-day -day job. And um, that's kind of our niche in a sense. It's taking things that frankly are quite complicated and bringing simplicity to the user. And, you know, that's, um, that's sort of easier said than done sometimes. And we've, <laughs> try to make a bit of a craft out of that 
And and I think that's probably captured most in our work with lattices um, and also to a certain extent with our um, tools that help to, to design flow paths, uh, especially if you were designing some kind of hydraulic manifold or something similar to that. Um, these were things that were just painful uh, at the time and we tried to simplify them. For flow paths, can you do like tooling flow paths? I'm obsessed with tooling. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So um, a lot of the interest we get in that particular feature comes from, well, two two sectors, sectors really. One is um, mold tool design where they're looking to get a more conformal network of cooling channels close to the surface of the, the mold tool, um, hopefully reducing cycle times and increasing the life of that mold tool. And then alternatively, we've got um, the hydraulic manifold case. So this is everything from high-end motorsport to possibly, you know, um, racing on the water and, and other sort of high performance uh, activities where every gram seems to count, right? So if you can take what was a lump of a, a solid block of stainless steel or something like that, and you can reduce the mass by, we usually aim for about 80% reduction in mass. Um, you know, that, that means an awful lot to these people. So yeah, that's a, that's a big reduction in mass. <laughs> I was just saying, but who is the target audience at the end of this? Is this, is this, are you still going for the same people that were using CAD previously? Are you going for engineer? Are you actually going to try on a, a larger scale, more mass market? So at the end of the day, it's for anybody who is trying to incorporate a lattice structure, and that could be of many different types and for many different reasons. And it's also for people who are looking to exploit additive manufacturing in conjunction with a fluids application. So that could be ah. heat exchanger, hydraulic manifold, possibly even filter design, um, even designing things like um, reactors for uh, you know chemical processes and things like that. So a lot of what we're aiming to address is, um, well, let me word that differently. A lot of the biggest success stories that we've seen are when people are using additive manufacturing in conjunction with these fluid and heat transfer applications. There are, of course, the general structural lightweighting cases, but we are, I don't want to sound arrogant with this, but we're sort of taking that as a given with additive manufacturing. You know, every part should really be considering that because it's part of reducing the amount of material and then for bringing down the production time and cost of the additive manufacturing process. What we want to see is people going beyond that into um, much more uh, potentially powerful applications of the additive manufacturing technology. And really, I link that to anybody who's going to benefit from what I'll call a high surface area to volume ratio. So if you want a heat exchanger, really you're looking to maximize your heat transfer surface within a certain volume. You have a high surface area to volume ratio. If you're designing uh, a photocatalytic reactor, for example, you need to make sure you've got a large surface area within a small volume. And actually this thing comes up again and again and again. So if anybody is listening to this and saying, Actually, my application is one of those where we benefit from having a lot of surface area within a certain volume, then Gen 3 is potentially a, a very good thing for you to check out. Um, now, that sounds very scientific. Uh, I could have given a more general answer of, you know, really, we're here for designers, engineers, occasionally artists. Um, we have all kinds of users on, on the Gen 3D software, and we welcome them all. Um, it's great to see that diversity. So it's meant to be, but, but the most interesting applications are those that you need to have like an awful lot of geometry packed into a very tiny, tiny space, right? Isn't that like the per definition, some of those interesting areas of additive? If I heard your question correctly, um, yeah, I, I, for, for me, the people we've seen garnering the, the biggest success stories um, with additive manufacturing are also those people who are trying to pack a lot of surface into a certain volume. Um, did, I, did I slightly mishear your question there, Joris? 
No, that, that's yeah. exactly that's exactly what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The heat exchanger, like you mentioned, but also uh, heat, heat sinks for sure. Yep, um, and you know the marketing material that we put out on LinkedIn and other social media platforms really tries to stick within that um, sort of family. So rather than saying, "Oh, it's for this application and for that application." I guess what we're trying to preach is that really it's for anybody who's switched on to the idea of, yeah, high surface area to, to volume ratio. Um, and it's a nice rule of thumb when you're designing something for additive manufacturing. Anyway, if you can look at if you can look at the objects and say, actually, yeah, that's got a pretty high surface area to volume ratio, you're probably doing a lot of things right. That sounds like a massive oversimplification, but actually it really travels quite far, um, that kind of loose rule of thumb. And uh, we we use it all the time um, internally. So uh, yeah, it's part of our philosophy. Yeah, because so, it's interesting if if you look at like how parts are made. Like uh, traditionally, a company might lightweight something, right? And then usually they don't really get a lot of benefits unless it's like a satellite or a rocket or whatever, right? Um, but if we would do a lot of things at the same time, like if we make that geometry be much more complex, then actually like. You know, at one point, the, it becomes much easier for us, and we're going to redesign the thing anyway, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Is there anything particularly surprising that you've seen people make with the, the software so far that you just would never have thought of that? Um, so I think some of the more most surprising... So we have a, two types of uh, customer, really. You've got people that are in um, a sort of academic research, and then you've got the you know people out in industry, and um, we have seen very interesting things coming from both camps. I'm probably a little bit more at liberty to talk about some of the academic stuff. Um, I was on a I was actually part of a publication that came out a few years ago where an academic was trying to separate a, an emulsion of oil and water. Right, so you've got the two mixed together, and as part of the kind of water cleaning process you would you need to separate those two things out and generally that would be a kind of chemical process and quite energy intensive and we worked out together i suppose that if you use a, a lattice like geometry you can actually just pump the water through the lattice and because one part of the emulsion has mm, more exactly. of an affinity to the surface you can actually rip the oil straight out of the water um without any chemical process um in the loop which is uh i i think that's not the sort of thing people are thinking about when they think of 3d printing but i mean it's such a lovely development um yeah no that's a that's a nice application and that goes further and further there's there's a lot of work ongoing in that space about cleaning of of fluids um and the, the boundary between what we would traditionally recognize as membrane science and now additive manufacturing, which is pretty much at the level where it's now good enough to print things that are like membranes. Um, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, I love this. I love this application. I love, I've been following it for a while. There's like a desalination company in Singapore that uses essentially 3D printing to make a desalination technology there's other people making membranes a similar meshes and, and and kind of trying to get like you, you could really optimize a mesh and, and and similar to to what we're seeing in the helmets where where you know a foam can give you certain performance but a 3d printed helmet can give you optimal performance let's say absolutely and in, in multiple dimensions right so the helmets the nfl helmets for example the best example for everyone i guess you, you can have a sharp impact and it can be designed to absorb the sharp impact well and also slow, really heavy impact at the same time. And we can see that with meshes as well, where you do meshes and, and filtration membranes to do multiple things. And I think that's just so exciting. And I think we always miss this as an industry because they don't buy machines. Like nobody is going to buy a machine. If you're a water filtration company, you're not going to spend $2 million on, on metal additives to do this. But you go to a service bureau, and then for the service bureau, it's not a big business. But it's a really big impact for this uh, the chemical company. And I love this as an application. It's one of these things that I really try to focus on, like this idea of flow and the idea of looking at, you know, these things that are a bit unknown, maybe, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think there was there was a period in time in the online community and possibly the mainstream media where you would be forgiven for thinking additive manufacturing was about making lightweight brackets, right? 
it was it was it was always it was always saw <laughs> for years and i think that was um really they are beautiful, beautiful brackets and i have nothing against lightweight brackets <laughs> per se um i just personally happen to find these um other a- applications a-, a bit more exciting uh, i hate to be controversial but <laughs> yeah just, i agree but i think i think really like okay ge it isn't, it isn't like GE is like, well, brackets and, and even replacing fasteners would be huge for them, right? But, but of course, if GE is into additive because they can, you know, make more, uh, enable more high temperature materials or make the engine um, uh, more efficient, right? And also to make better turbine blades, right? The, the bracket and the nozzle were just a really good, safe kind of way to show off the geometry without showing the geometry and to give people an example they could talk about. You know, it was like, it was literally, it's like food for us to think about more than, you know, it's not like they spend like you know a ton of over a billion dollars on additive because like they like brackets a lot. You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I guess I'm saying this with uh, a little bit of tongue in cheek. Um, it's uh, no, it, yeah. it's you're absolutely right. I agree, Joris, completely. But um, yeah, I would say I would encourage. It's almost like a call to arms, I suppose, for those that are in these sectors where additive manufacturing has not necessarily gained a huge amount of traction. I think there is some amazingly um, exciting opportunities there. Uh, in addition to meshes, I'm also ridiculously excited about nozzles. nozzles. Aerated, aerated nozzles, uh, nozzles with cooling channels. I think about like a Mars factory and just being able to extrude the caramel. You know, it dries a little bit. It sets, you know, one second faster on all the Mars bars. Like imagine the impacts of them, you know. Uh, and I, I love nozzles. I think I think that's an amazing application that we, we 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 you know think about all the food, all the cookies, all the food that you eat daily that is extruded, and and all the chemicals and all the all the the you know all the products you buy that are extruded. There's an insane amount. Yeah, I mean, Joris, I, I don't want to get you too excited, but actually, it was a nozzle-like application that was. Um one of the things I was working on during the pandemic, actually. Um, which So we had, um, as I'm sure many countries had, we had this real fear in the first lockdown in the UK that there, there could be widespread ventilator shortage. And so uh, a lot of the academics that I work with lumped together and we started looking at like, okay, well, what would we do if that does happen? As it happens, the solution was that we massively scaled up production of ventilators, and that was absolutely the right thing to do. But if we hadn't been able to do that so quickly, we would have have had to look elsewhere. And this would have started to potentially get into the dangerous practice of ventilator sharing. Right. Yeah, I've looked into that too. That that never looked like a good idea. It's, uh, I am in no way condoning that as a medical practice. I'm not qualified to, and I, I also think it's you know quite dangerous. But if you were to try and do it safely, there's a whole, whole load of um, valves and restriction devices that you need to introduce to avoid over or under inflating the stronger or weaker lungs of your mismatched patients. And I have to say... That was a fascinating design exercise for me because I have never before designed something that I genuinely didn't ever want to see used. Yeah. yeah. And as an engineering exercise, it was uh, it was fantastic, and it has all of these things you're talking about um, in terms of nozzles and creative geometry around getting certain behavior out of that nozzle, um, and uh, fabulous uh, problem. But yeah, I was sitting there thinking oh my goodness i really hope this never sees the light of day you know we there has to be something better and um but it's a fantastic case study in the responsiveness of additive manufacturing i mean we had that prototype and tested on a ventilator machine within a couple of weeks right hospital actually let us in we got some anesthetists to test that um and you know to get that produced any other way we would have been probably into the months um, and that just wasn't quick enough. So, I mean, additive manufacturing to the rescue again. Uh, in addition to nozzles, which I, I think industrial, or just like imagine just making a plant like, you know, 0.3% more efficient, you know, with these kind of things. I love also valves. Like this IMI Critical is already doing this. Uh, they, they replace valves. So they have old valves and they essentially remanufacture them using 3D printing. And then they, they, they pop them back in again in this legacy equipment. Oh, because they're just out, they're out of production. Well, 
Yeah, they're out of production, or they're just unique, or all of them are spec unique. Apparently, at one point, everybody thought it was a great idea to make all the valves unique, and yeah. I've run into this problem recently, actually, <laughs> the valve problem. I've seen some really interesting concepts coming out of that space, actually. You know, even um, at the moment, we have this idea of you have a valve that's one unit, and it sits inside something else, maybe a manifold or whatever, and it made sense for those things to be divided that way. Uh, but we've had conversations with um, with with people where actually that that division between that is a valve and that is a manifold can be blurred slightly. You can start having maybe half of the valve geometry built into the manifold, um, and so you're you know producing you're building more complexity into the manifold, and ultimately you're starting to reduce you know individual part count over the whole system by quite a substantial margin um which simplifies supply chains and you know all the rest uh and that you know in those sectors that maybe aren't so switched on to light weighting and things like that um there are other pressure points that you can tap into um and it's uh yeah i, I generally found that there's something for everyone they just may not know it yeah i think, I, think we, I was just on a paddle with the additive manu manufacturing strategies um and there the conclusion of the the panel people are all really serious additive people and 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 the conclusion of the panel was really that that more or that more industries are going to benefit from lightweighting now the more industries are going to look into it this is example of this industrial robot that has 500 3d printed parts in it and and it reduces the mass of the robot it makes the robot more energy efficient and and that just really yeah you know, that's a difference for them you know uh, and it's also also you know they can use more robots and, and per, like a limited square square footage as well so it's these kind of things that especially in a kind of electrified kind of energy conscious universe and these things will make more yeah, be more impactful you know oh my goodness I mean yeah and I think actually when you think about the headline technologies that are hopefully going to clean the the planet up. Um, Whilst you may not see additive manufacturing right at the heart of that in the kind of enabling technologies that, that sit around, for example, a hydrogen fuel cell, cell. There, there is so much scope for additive manufacturing, manufacturing as well. well. I, mean, I mean, there's, there's obviously, obviously the research interest of 3D printing parts of hydrogen fuel cells, cells and things, things like that. that. Um, but, but when you actually look, look at the system, system that sits around all of those, those my goodness, goodness yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's a, a key enabling technology of some of these things. I, I can't really state that strongly enough from, you know, my perspective. No, I totally agree. And I think also, like, we can do the enabling technology to get started, and we can also make it more valuable. Like, some battery could not work uh, or could not be commercially viable. Maybe we could print it conformally, for example. Uh, or, or uh, uh, And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, we'd, it would be viable. You know, we, we could do things to, to make newer technologies more attractive quicker and bring them to market faster generally right i think a lot of the advantages are about layering on the benefits so okay it's light that's one benefit okay it fits into a really awkward shape great that's another benefit oh actually we could also make this structural whereas previously it wasn't there's a third benefit and if you keep layering on those benefits i think the business case for additive gets just gets better and better and better yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's more the realization of what the tools can do. <laughs> yeah. and but also, like, like what I said before, like I, I, another thing that's really very coincidental. I made, a, uh, I did a presentation AMS on how to three D print a golf club. It's like a, it's like a, you know, it's like a exercise, like a thought like an mm -hmm. exercise kind of thing. And the idea is that initially you don't think that there's a lot going, but what companies do, they'll do one dimension of additive. And then we'll end up what I call like expensive paperweights, right? It's lighter weight, but it has no business value. But if you then go the extra mile and do six different things, right? Uh, or look for these the envelope in six different areas or six different dimensions, then often you can take something and actually make it cost effective. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, we, we kind of um, affectionately use golf clubs uh, as a marketing piece in Gen 3D. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's actually... It generates quite a lot of excitement because, you know, people who might not necessarily have been switched on to additive manufacturing, but were switched on to golf, you know, they're sort of like, ah, okay, this is interesting. But as you say, there's, um, you've got to think, okay, well, a lighter golf club, sure. Okay, that's interesting. 
what would be quite what I quite like to see is a you know a, a golf club that's uh, incapable of sending your putt offline. That would be uh, you know a guaranteed straight putt would be uh, <laughs> that'd help me a lot. Anyway, that would be cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> Or more power or, you know, because you could do a weird mix of materials that you could never do before, or you could almost make a spring system. Yeah, totally, totally. Every time I've done this, the most exciting to me is this idea of having a dampening component on the handle mm. so that you can hit more balls more comfortably. And then a dampening component on the, the head so the head would stay perpendicular, say, in the position you want it to be and not, like, be off, you know, when you hit the ball. So I thought, I thought that, that to me has always been the most exciting thing about 3D printed golf clubs. They always do the head, right? But I'm always like, uh, the dampening component is much smaller. Uh, it has much more of like a positive effect for the user, right? You can hit 100 balls without feeling tired, right? Uh, and you might be more accurate. And it's also more compact. So there's less time and space in the machine. So it's a much more better business case. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, anyway, so 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 about about Gen three D a bit. I mean, you guys. So is it weird being a bunch of academics running a software company? Is it kind of a bit strange? Are you guys a bit strange in that sense as a startup? We're definitely strange within the academic community. So <laughs> so um, you know, not not every academic is starting up a company. And what I would say is the University of Bath were really excellent at. Um, allowing us to explore this they gave us a lot of support and I guess that's a shout out to them but I mean it you know it's, it's coming from the heart they did a, a great job of helping us get incorporated um, so it's what what we've got is we've got the directors so you know Wesley is um, the CTO and he spends you know 100% of his time working on Gen 3D and uh, Vimal and I have one foot uh, still firmly in the academic camp. And what's quite nice about that is it does bring a certain, uh, dare I say, sort of honesty and rigor to what we're saying. It, it has helped us in the past to be able to say, look, a lot of what we're talking about is propped up by the rigor of academia. And uh, we try not to use that just as a sales gimmick. It, we try to make that, you know, really a core part of what we're up to in Gen 3D, you know, it's very easy to make a tool that sort of works, but something that's been really sort of rigorously tested and, you know, proven out uh, is, you know, usually a lot better. And so we kind of celebrate the fact we have one foot in each camp. And then, of course, we've got our like fantastic team of um, full time employees in Gen 3D, like Stephen Gogolan. Um, and we've got uh, Nikki running our like marketing Nikki Hammett running our marketing and they're just doing a fantastic job um and you know because we all know each other so well we've known each other for a, quite a long time now it's the next best thing to a family business really we, it's, we have a very close culture the team is not huge as well so we have a you know a lovely oversight of everything that's going on in the company um and it's underpinned by science and that's and that's a big part of what we do I like it. You can shoot it as a slogan. Now with academic rigor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you find as a result of that, though, that you're not as potentially flexible time-wise um, because you are trying to be so rigorous? And traditionally, businesses can pivot so quickly if they have to, especially small ones. Do you know what? I actually would argue the other way on that. I completely oh. understand where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah please. <laughs> but uh, if, if you kind of go into some of the stuff on our LinkedIn, you'll see um, on some of our posts around stochastic TPMS lattices, we went from um, picking that up in the scientific community, um, some fantastic work done by uh, you know a fellow academic, so Orai Belkatan, uh, had this lovely paper published on stochastic um, lattices, TPMS lattices. And then I think it was about a week that we turned that paper into a feature with his blessing, of course, um, about a week. So what we tend to have is one ear firmly to the ground on the things that are coming through, the new science that's coming through. And what we're very used to doing is whipping that up into new um, features in the software uh, and so we see it more of the you know getting getting ahead of the game kind of thing uh, 
and we and we we tend to be able to move pretty quickly. Well, not only that, given that you guys do have a foot in academia, I'm sure you have an easier time than a traditional company speaking to academics to request permission to do things like that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're not in the business of stealing people's ideas. You know, we're either right, in concert no. with them or we're looking at things that are already out in the you know, public domain. And, and of course, we make our own innovations too. But you can, yeah, there is a somewhat less threatening approach when you're coming from the academic side academics generally aren't that threatening to people <laughs> um but you know we're weighing in and uh, you know as the director and co-founder of gen 3d you know i guess that's a different conversation um but yeah both are both are good both have their uses I'm glad you're here because then you can get to explain to us what <laughs> see these T these stochastic TPMS whatever lattices are because so it's a repeating lattice structure, right? Right. So I, I don't want to go down a, a massive, massive technical rabbit hole. <laughs> oh please! Uh, people will not <laughs> shut up about these things. So if we go okay. On that... Uh, okay. Uh, rabbit hole. Then please this because I think I need to understand this because they won't shut up and I can't. Like with regular lattices, I just ask them like, oh, but we can't model it and we can't predict its behavior, and then they kind of like pipe down. With these, everybody's just so excited about them that, that they don't shut up. So I, I need to know more. <laughs> okay. So the the story begins with the general idea of wanting to introduce a lattice into an object because it is still structurally performant but lightweight. So that's where the story begins. And the first things that were really trialed first were what I would call the crystallographic lattices. So these look like truss elements, so like cylindrical beams arranged inside a, a cube. And, you know, it might be the diagonals across the cube. It could be something like a three-dimensional cross. And you get this terminology like face-centered cubic, body-centered cubic. And, and these really have their origins in crystallography. Um, what I would say, the best way to describe the problem is for anybody who's working with a traditional CAD system, go away and basically make a 3D cross um, out of three cylinders and then try and create a 20 by 20 by 20 pattern of that cross in your, in your CAD system. And then you see how your CAD system responds to that. For most, <laughs> yeah. So, pretty unless you've got a supercomputer under your I was desk, say, I got um, computer, so. <laughs> you will you will find that you, you've basically crashed your CAD system. Now, the whole reason that things like TPMS or um, you, another term that you'll hear alongside that is implicit modeling um, came to the fore really is because you can generate lattice-like geometry but in a much more computationally efficient manner. Um, and the reason it tends to be much more computationally efficient is because you can do a lot of computation on, say, the GPU instead of the CPU of your computer. Um, and the entire lattice is basically coming from one equation. And right. what that really means is you, don't, you no longer have this um, patterning operation, this sort of taking a unit and tiling it in space. The whole lattice, all of the units, come from one single equation. And the best way I can describe that is like a balloon. So if you imagine I'm sat in my room and I'm filling a balloon with helium and outside of the balloon is just normal air. The way implicit surfaces work is you don't explicitly describe the shape of the balloon. All you do is say the balloon is the thing that is the boundary between the helium and the air outside the balloon. And when you start thinking of geometry that in that abstract way, that implicit way, you don't say exactly what it looks like. You just say it's the boundary between two domains. Um, you get a heck of a lot of um, design freedom and power to create some very, very interesting shapes. And one example of this is uh, a TPMS, which stands for Triply Periodic Minimal Surface. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but if you break it down, triply periodic means that it just infinitely repeats in three directions, in X, Y, and Z, for example. And that's how you get the whole lattice, because this shape is just repeating itself naturally. The minimal bit of TPMS, the M, um, 
that is uh, basically coming from the, the nature of the surface itself. So it locally minimizes its surface area. And the best real world example I can give of that is like unwrapping a wire coat hanger and then dipping that into a sort of soapy water solution, and you would get a, a soap film kind of spanning the uh, the wire coat hanger shape that you've made, right? That film of soapy water that's um, suspended in the sort of unfolded coat hanger frame that you've made is uh, a minimal surface. It is the uh, sort of locally minimum surface area that spans a certain boundary, and... The nice thing that comes out of that uh, is that you get kind of infinitely smooth surfaces, so you don't have any sort of stress-raising features in these uh, surfaces. Because they're implicit, just like the balloon example I gave, you've got a, a shape that divides sort of one domain, which was the helium, from the rest of the air in the room. And that's kind of really nice for things like heat exchangers, because these TPMS uh, lattices have like, uh, you know, one pore network on one side of it, which could take, say, air. And then on the other side of the surface is a completely uh, unconnected, but very much interwoven second pore network that you could have water in. So you could have an air-to-water heat exchanger pretty much straight off the bat with these TPMS surfaces. Um, so there's just a whole load of benefit. The only slight inconvenience is that up until recently, mainstream CAD packages do not speak the language of implicit surfaces or TPMS, right? So that was, um, you can see they're kind of catching on a little bit now. There've been some interesting developments with like Autodesk Fusion 360, for example. Uh, the 3MF consortium is starting to put a volumetric extension into their standard. Um, so yeah, people are getting the message now, but the, 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 the older players like Entopology, like they've been on to this for a long time, uh, Gen 3D also, and, uh, and a few others, of course, and I just use those two examples. There's some really nice alternatives as well. Well, I, I think this is really exciting. I, I looked at this once because we had a, uh, we, we were trying to make one of these, one, uh, uh, a whole bunch of these, um, uh, these uh, auto, uh, these KUKA uh, robots uh, print, right? And the problem was we didn't have enough memory. So the idea was that we could circumvent the limited memory on the machine by giving a structure that was like kind of like being uh, kind of designed on the go or that was just infinitely repeating. We didn't actually, I didn't, at least I didn't make it work, but um, but we thought of it in that way. So I was really excited, but I never really understood them. That was a really clear explanation. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I had a curious question about the lattices made me think we often represent like atomic structures in lattice formats. Um, in the long run, like do you think, can your software actually be used to model atomic structures potentially, or is there a whole branch of math that's obviously missing? Okay. So um, this is geometry uh, in the additive manufacturing domain and, and generally in graphics is a bit of a three headed monster you've got right. your kind of very well developed and highly controllable parametric um surfaces that you would see in your traditional cad software and non-uniform rational b splines are the kind of workhorse of that community super mature absolutely great for you know highly controlled geometry um and then you know when 3d printers started really taking off uh for better or for worse, fell into the another family of geometry, which is the tessellated surface mesh. So triangle surfaces. Triangle. Um, yeah, yeah. And look, it's really easy to be rude about triangle yeah. meshes. It's it's really easy to be rude. But by all means. <laughs> it's very they are they are the the translator of the geometry community. If all else fails, you tend to be able to go from parametric surfaces into triangles or you can go from implicit surfaces like gen 3d works with into triangles right so it's quite it's quite a it's it speaks to both it's very hard comparatively speaking to go from an implicit surface to a parametric surface so i, I don't want to be too rude about triangles because they've served some really important functions um and also planar triangles are really easy to write algorithms for, which helps a lot of people out. Um, so yeah, you've got 
different functions behind different types of geometry. And now, if you wanted to get down to stupid levels of detail, like you were for an object that might be hundreds of millimeters in length, but has features that are on, say, the, the nanometer scale or even less than that, in my view, the best way to do that would be to describe the object purely mathematically and never actually attempt to store the entire object <laughs> in one place. No, no. You really, you really want to, I think the best way to get around that is to communicate the purely mathematical description of the object directly to the printer at that point and kind of stream the object to it, like Joris was saying. Right. Um, because holding all of this information, you can you can innovate and you can innovate and you can innovate in terms of trying to be data efficient. But you'll always be able to imagine just a ridiculous case that would be, you know, just beyond any conceivable storage or, you know, um, data transfer rates that we currently have. And, well, the only way you're going to break through that is to not even try. And, and there have been some really nice um, bits of work done by others about going directly from, say, implicit surfaces to uh, slicing and hatching in the printer. Uh, and, and for me, if you go just one step further and you start streaming that, um, then you can get into these silly levels of detail that we're talking about here. Um, and data exchange is a key enabler in additive manufacturing. Right. There's, there's I mean, no question. You, um... I know that on the physical side of things, like we don't have that technology, but could you imagine a world where we could, if you could imagine a world where we could place atom by atom, um, I guess the question is how, you know, the software requirements for something like that seem to be just as big a challenge at the end of the day as, as the uh, physical absolutely. requirements. So yeah. I say this uh, quite often, probably embarrassingly often, um, we are in the unfortunate situation where we have the imagination to come up with very interesting shapes. We have the machines that can make those shapes, but we can't actually bring them into the real world uh, because of the digital bottleneck. So when people talk about software unlocking additive manufacturing, you know they're really not joking. It's um, immensely serious business trying to free up and unleash all of this capability um and you know we're, we're only really making the beginnings of of the inroads into that problem you know you can imagine let's take a, a metal powder bed process realistically you're going to be printing features down to about 300 microns in resolution at the moment but if you have an entire build volume full of 300 micron features uh, the digital model that would represent that is pretty well beyond most of the computing capability out there um, that people are likely to have in their office or, you know, design studio. Um, there are exceptions to that. There are some sort of edge cases where people have done some really nice work. I remember like beta type, for example, that they've been bought out now but beta type were champ really championing this they did some fantastic work early on um and i think they were really onto it you know if you can get the bottleneck out um out of the way you can do incredible things yeah uh, totally or like design the entire uh like we put the parts in the in the build volume and then we nest them yeah how about making the whole thing right uh how about making the whole thing one file and then optimizing it for printing, for example, or optimizing all the supports of everything in a way. I like that kind of thinking is to me really exciting if we're going to production. Absolutely. And that, that's the next layer of complexity, isn't it? It's all good and well designing the shape as as you wish it to be at the end, but you've got all of the additional consideration of putting support in and uh, making sure you're not generating too much spatter or um, introducing too much residual stress. It's, uh, yeah, it's fertile ground for innovation, to say the least. Yeah, totally. And one thing I was I was excited about the streaming idea, where you could make an object that's truly unique, but you wouldn't have any record of it. It wouldn't be able to recreate it, recreate it precisely. So you could make like a key or some like a hash, like a physical hash, like a physical object that would be like unique, and you would have no idea of making another one. This is a really interesting debate that I actually get into quite a lot because there are certain things that can be done on the machine. So are you certifying the the recipe? 
Or are you certifying the ingredients? Are you certifying the final meal, you know, to use a restaurant analogy? Um, and it's hard to say, but there are things that you can do. So if you sort of defocus the laser on a metal powder bed machine, or you exaggerate the step over between adjacent laser hatches, you can directly print in porous structures into your into your objects, which if you had to include them in the digital model would be a real pain. Um, and 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 it's hard to say what the where the correct place to define that porous structure is. Do you just leave it out of the model and let the laser do it? Um, in which case you need to certify a machine and material combination, um, not so much uh, well machine material and parameter set combination, not the not the actual geometry, and that's. You know that take you need to open your mind up a bit, do a bit of mental gymnastics to imagine signing off on that. Yeah, but, 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 imagine, but imagine it for an anti counterfeiting application, for example, where we know the geometry, but the machine does something unique as like a signature that it prints inside this geometry in this particular, uh, and then no one can know this geometry, right? Except perhaps like the machine operator or something like that. And then you would have a way to, to, to have like kind of an anti-counterfeiting thing where no one could replicate it unless it was made on that same machine. That's very exciting. I did actually, uh, something crossed my in-tray the other day where someone had managed to get a uh, QR code into the grain structure of an additively manufactured component. And I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, well, there you go. That's, that's a pretty yeah, neat trick. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that is a neat trick, actually. Thank you. Thank you. But, but hey, but like right now we build cages for these things. You have labels you cut off, or you put something on the support. So anything to do that in a kind of way would be very exciting as well uh, for a lot of people. Or to just put it on a layer, like to have a QR code that would then be just would come off in in uh, in, uh, in a later stage, for example. The the conversation around additive manufacturing and IP uh, is very much ongoing. Um, some people do get concerned. Um, even uh, I mean, the pandemic even highlighted some interesting issues, like things that you people would be willing to invite you to their facility to see. They're maybe not necessarily ready to show you that uh, across the internet, um, and there's just. So, so many issues around IP um, and additive manufacturing. It's uh, it's quite interesting, and you know, I I don't want to throw too many buzzwords around, but you know, people get a little bit nervous around generative design as well. You know, if you know if you knew how someone described the problem, and you knew the approach they took to solving it, you can effectively you know re-engineer the geometry. Um, but I, I I don't get too too worried about these things. I think there's a lot of good work going on. Uh, focus on the engineering for now. And, and actually, if you like Joe's teaching, there's a, you guys do like a course, right? You have a, you have a class, an online Oh online my goodness. Yeah, Ooh. so this is, a, this is a passion project of ours, and this completely relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. So in the UK, um, we, like many other countries, got hit pretty hard, and um, I don't know if the term furlough travels very well across international borders, but what happened in the UK was um, a lot of companies weren't sure about whether they could retain their staff. So the government offered what was called the furlough scheme that would pay some or all of that employee's salary for a fixed period of time. But the deal was they weren't allowed to work. So you couldn't be on furlough and working. Oh. So what we, what we had was... Uh, really quite a significant number of very bright people working in technical domains sat at home possibly watching netflix uh and not not a lot else so then the british government um released a, a series of funding to say look this isn't great this is obviously awful in fact um if anyone's got any bright ideas about how to make the world a bit of a better place um we'd like to hear it so we, we saw that at Gen3D and we thought, do you know what? I don't think there's enough people who know about additive manufacturing and how to design for that process. But a lot of people have heard about it and might have a curiosity. So how about we tap into those students? How about we tap into those engineers who are furloughed and sat at home and say, hey, look, this isn't great, but why don't you use the time to upskill or, you know, in 
you know improve yourself improve your knowledge in some way um and thankfully we were we were successful in that bid so we were given the money and we had a very short period of time to then say right we've got to produce a course and part of what i think convinced them to give us the money was that we said we would run the course pretty much completely within our software so it would be an interactive experience an immersive learning experience that could be done from home you just needed the internet and to be able to download the the gen 3d software and um stephen goggle i mean just an enormous shout out to to him because uh i mean if there's anything that he doesn't know about 3d printing i'm not sure it's worth knowing um he's just encyclopedic in terms of um his grasp of what's going on and he also happens to be pretty good on the training side as well so we sketched it up uh, we made the architectural changes in the back end of the software to accommodate the the tutorials and then we um we made them so steve working very closely with wesley basically morphed the software from a cad tool into a instructive educational tool and i think by last time i checked you know over the course of a little over a, a year, I think it was, we had educated um, in excess of 2,000 people around the world. And we were just incredibly proud of that. Um, it's quite hard to say exactly how many because some people start but don't finish. But, you know, in terms of people who've started the course, it's, you know, north of 2,000. And um, to put that into context, you know, going through the university where I work, we will educate um, about 350 people per year. So in terms of reach and scalability, uh, this like online format of learning, it's been, um, it's been a real eye opener for me as an educator and a business person. Uh, and yeah, we, we are so happy to have made a small contribution and hopefully made what was quite a horrible situation for a lot of people just a little bit better. What's the best place if people want to check this out to, to go? What, what's the uh, Straight to the Gen 3D website. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, the course is advertised there and, um, you get a certificate at the end of it, which, uh, you don't have to, but we, we ask people to kind of share that and see if anybody else in their network might be interested in learning. Of course, you could say that this is, uh, you know, this is an obvious sales stunt, uh, trying to bring positive attention towards the Gen 3D brand. And you know, I suppose, that is undeniable to a point, but it genuinely wasn't coming from that place. This was very much um, a, a sideline to our core business that we just felt was the right thing to do. And we want to continue putting it, you know, putting it out to the world. So, um, yeah, just uh, just get in touch with Gen3D, check out the website if you're interested, and um, we'd love to have you. Thank you, Joe. That's, that's really great, man. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your time today. No, it's my pleasure. It's been lovely talking to you. Oh, wonderful. And Max, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your time as well. Always. Thank you, Joris. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and my name is Joris Peels. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.